So if you would please stand with me for the reading of the word, the Lord. We are in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 13. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Please be seated. Thank you, Michelle. Man, after those announcements, I'm feeling very insecure as a man right now. We are definitely losing uh, the ministry battle this summer. (laughs) So I've decided right now, men, uh, instead of a series of summer soirees, we're going to have a series of summer sachets together as men. (laughs) We're just going to do some walking together and spending time getting to know one another. Oh, man. We'll come up with something. Come up with something. That was good. It was very good. Very good. Well, if you missed uh, last week, we started a new series that's going to take us through the summer. And what we're doing this summer is we're exploring what does it mean to cultivate an inner life with our God? We went through this series in Ezekiel where we saw this grand vision of who God is, this big, amazing, wild God. But the question now is, so how do you do life with that God? How do you, do, how do you have a daily walk with God? What does it mean to pursue this deep personal relationship with him, this inner life with God. And then in the fall, we're going to talk about how do we then engage in an outer life with God? How do we, with this God, go out into our world and love and serve and speak his truth into the world? So inner life this summer and then outer life uh, in the fall. And we started by looking at the life of Jesus and how he had this beautiful uh, rhythm of pursuing his own inner life with his heavenly father and then going out and meeting the people and living a life of service. So he'd withdraw to be with his father and then he'd engage and love people well. You saw this diagram called the cycle of grace where on the left side, you got the input where Jesus would withdraw and engage in certain activities where he received input from his father, guidance, rest and refreshment, a reminder of where his identity was found in the love of his father. And then, of course, from there, he moved out into this life of output, of love and service, of speaking, teaching, healing, exercising demons, conversing with people. And I gave us this image here, this image of overflow, that the idea is our lives are like a cup, right? And every day we're pouring out our cup, into our kids, into our spouses, into our friends, into our work. All these situations that demand our time, our energies, and attentions, we're constantly pouring ourselves out in one way or another. And so what the goal is, we want to live not from a place of emptiness or neediness, but from a place of fullness. And so we regularly have to go back to God to have that cup filled up. Go back to him for guidance, for wisdom, for a reminder of his truth and his grace and his love in our lives. So that our lives would then be lived out of the overflow of our relationship with God. It's out of the fullness of our relationship with him that then our our life of service emerges. And that's certainly what we saw with Jesus, right? Very busy life, lots of ministry, but you don't get a sense that the guy was, was working out of a place of neediness and emptiness. 
But there was this full, rich relationship that he cultivated with his heavenly father. And it was out of the richness, the fullness of that, the overflow of that, that his ministry spilled into other people's lives. And so what we're going to do is talk about what would it mean to follow in his footsteps? How do we follow his example? And specifically this summer, we'll be looking at disciplines and practices and rhythms that he engaged in. Meditating on God's word, getting away for times of solitude, uh, times of prayer with God, engaging in the Sabbath and the rest of, of a daily, of a weekly rhythm, uh, worshiping with God's community, these various specific practices that helped him to live this life of overflow. And so what we'll be doing is we'll be taking basically a specific habit or practice each week, or some of them will take a couple weeks on a specific but starting next week, we'll start talking about a daily reading of God's word. Uh, and then we'll go to prayer and other disciplines. But I thought before we, we got into the nitty-gritty, and this, is gonna get, this series is going to be very nitty-gritty. It's going to get into the, how do we do this? How do we actually engage in prayer? How do, we, how do we take God's word into our lives? Before we get granular and specific, I thought we'd have one more big-picture uh, sermon where we just remind ourselves, what is the point in all of this? All right, so you're encouraging me to have a, a time in God's word regularly. You're encouraging me to, to practice a time of Sabbath during my week. But what's the whole point? So before we get into the details, I thought, let's step back and remind ourselves, what is the goal of our lives? Let's, let's just big picture. What are we going after as Christians? And so I chose a passage that I have chosen many times before with you all. Um, because I just love its, its simplicity in getting at the heart of the matter in the Christian faith. It reminds us of the essential reality of our lives, what our lives as Christians is supposed to be about. And the verse that I want to focus in on is verse 3. So take a look at verse 3. There's a phrase that I just love. This is Paul writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth in the first century. Verse 3, he says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray, and here's the phrase, from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I want to put that phrase up. You're going to see this phrase a lot today. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is the goal. This is the main point, okay? If you are a Christian, a Christian, essentially what that means is I am devoted to a person, and that person is Christ. He saved me. He loves me. He guides me. One day he's going to give me eternal life with him forever. My life is first and foremost about Christ, I am devoted to him. My, my life is not, what it means to be a Christian is not first and foremost inheriting the religion of my parents or first and foremost a set of activities I engage in or a set of political views I have or, or any other thing. First and foremost, what it means for me to be a Christian is I am devoted to a person and that person is Jesus Christ. And I want to keep that front and center as we go through this series. This is the whole point. Jesus himself is the whole point. And today I want to run with two metaphors, two analogies of our relationship with Jesus that I think help kind of flesh out what what this means, all right? 
So the first analogy, the first metaphor is actually the one that Paul is running with in this passage. What metaphor for our relationship with Jesus is Paul running with in this passage? Marriage, Marriage, right? Fairly obvious, right? So we're going to run with this metaphor in talking about our devotion to Christ. Uh, Look at verse 2. Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So the analogy is this. When we give our lives to Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is suggesting, we enter into a time of engagement. In the first century, a betrothal, okay? Many of us have been through an engagement process. First century, a much more robust um, commitment was betrothal. And Paul's saying, our lives from the time we become Christians till the day we die, that is our betrothal. We are now betrothed to our groom, Jesus. We are engaged to our King, Jesus. One day we will die or Jesus will return and will consummate that relationship in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Right now we experience that relationship only in part. One day when Christ returns, we will experience it in fullness. And so Paul is saying, I have, I've been a part of this process of, of helping you with your faith. So you're now engaged to Jesus. And my goal is that I might work with you so that you would keep that pure and simple devotion to him. So that when he returns, I might present you to him as this pure virgin, this spotless bride. Who can say to Jesus, I kept my heart for you. I kept you first and my heart and mine and my affections and my passions. You were the one I lived my life for. And you might not pick it up in your English, but in verse 2, there's a real emphasis. He says, I have promised you to one man, (laughs) to Jesus, okay? You're not committed to two men or three men or four men, right? I don't want your hearts divided by various masters, various lovers. I want you committed to one, your fiancé, Jesus Christ, who will return and you will live with him forever. We, the church, are corporately his bride. Paul's concern in verse 3 is this. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds might somehow be led astray. That the purity, the simplicity, the single-mindedness of this relationship, my, my fear is that you might be led astray from that somehow. And in the original context, the danger is false teachers, okay? And you just trust me on this. That in Corinthians, there are these other people coming in and they're preaching other doctrines about who Jesus was. And the Corinthians were like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds really good. So false teaching was the thing that was tempting them to be led astray from who Jesus really was. And false teaching remains a danger throughout the church's history. But what I want to suggest today as much of a danger as as that currently is, is I want to think just more broadly of, I think there's a a more general danger than false teaching to our relationship with Jesus, and it's just the general danger of distraction, (laughs) of life happening, of the busyness of our responsibilities, and the pleasures that this world, especially in Orange County, the distractions that are available to us all the time. That we can say, yes, I love Jesus, I'm devoted to you. But then our lives just start happening. And we just, we just kind of get our hearts and minds get moved to, to other things so that we lose that sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. Um, I was uh, 
um, Carrie and I were having a conversation with a fr- some friends recently, and um, it was interesting. One of the friends, I think it was their anniversary that day or, or that weekend, and so we were having a dinner, dinner conversation. The question, it's kind of a bad question, but the question came up, what was your hardest year of marriage? And people are going around, and it gets to my wife, and she goes, I think this past year has been our hardest year. <laughs> and I go, uh, and as she started talking, I was like, she's right. You're absolutely right. And it's not like this, this, this it's about a year ago she's referring to, it hasn't been a, a year of greater conflict, or, I mean, it's, we're just doing life. It was the year of our third child being born, Right? And so it was just a year of new distractions, new responsibilities. When we were first married, a pure and simple devotion came pretty easily for us, right? Saturdays, we could go for a hike for three hours if we wanted. That was easy to do, and we could have a great conversation together. We'd come home from work at night. We could have an hour-long good conversation and still get in two hours of TV at the end of the night. We still fit all that into our schedules, you know? We didn't have to work for it. Uh, Now, you know, nine years later with three kids, now we have to work for it. We've lost the, the natural rhythms that, that played into what just made relationship easy. And we are, Karen and I are very much both relational connectors. And so we don't have those spaces, those natural spaces to do that relational connecting as much now. And that's what she was referring to. And so we're now still trying to figure out what are the rhythms of our marriage in this new season of life. And we actually... To be honest, we have to figure out, do we even want it enough? Like, we had something. Are we willing to fight for what we used to have in terms of our relationship? Or are we going to live with a, maybe a slightly different level of connectedness through these years? Every marriage has to wrestle with those questions. But it's, a, it's actually a great metaphor for, for our relationship with Jesus. We're his bride. He's our groom. We belong to him. He is to take first place. But then life happens. And the distractions and the temptations, and we can lose that pure and simple devotion. So the question that this summer series is posing to us, and this metaphor is this, are we willing to fight hard for that or not? Okay? And in practical ways, the question is this, am I crafting a life where this is likely to take place? Am I creating a set of rhythms in my life, a set of practices, a set of habits where I am, by which I am intentionally pursuing this sincere and pure devotion to Christ? Can I look at my life as a whole and say, yes, my life is set up well. I am being intentional in ways that are going to make this happen. Or if I'm honest, would I say, you know what, this is, this is a good idea. Like this is a, this is a cute idea, but I don't see anything in my life that would lead me to think this is likely to happen based on how I'm living my life currently. Does that make sense? Okay. You look at Jesus, right? In his relationship with his father. Very busy life, full of ministry. But he, last week we saw, his life was set up well. He engaged in certain things that helped him to pursue that sincere and pure devotion to his heavenly father. All right, so that's the the first metaphor, the metaphor of marriage. The second one uh, doesn't come from this passage, but I want to bring it up because you see it a lot in the Gospels in Jesus' relationship with his disciples. And it is more the relationship of uh, a mentorship, an apprenticeship, where you have a, a master, uh, someone who's good at a, a craft or a skill, an occupation, or even today we might say even a sport or something like that. And then you have an apprentice who is learning 
the skill, the sport, the occupation from the master. And, and that's really, I think, the model of discipleship that you see Jesus use in the Gospels. That Jesus is the master, not at a skill, but he's the master of all of life. He's the master of, of living well, living as God designed us, living as, as a human being, fully fleshing out what it means to be created in the image of God. And so he, he calls these disciples, come, I'll show you how to do this. Walk with me, follow me, learn to live life from me. We are his apprentices in his school of life, we could say. So to use that analogy, the sincere and uh, pure devotion to Christ, that is not just a devotion to him and his person, which the marriage analogy gets at, right? I'm devoted to him. I want to keep that passion for him. But I think what that also means biblically is a sincere and pure devotion to his way of life, to walking with him, to learning to live life the way he taught us to live life, to following his example, as he often says to his disciples. Um, Our men's ministry, Axios, just finished the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus shows us and tells us, here's the way I want you to live. Love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. Don't store up all your treasures in earthly things. Store them up in in heavenly things. Don't be anxious. Trust that God will provide for you. Don't judge. Don't be judgmental towards one another. But do to others what you would want them to do. All the models and teaches this way of life. And the question of this series, this summer series, is this. Have I set up a life, have I crafted a life in the rhythms and practices that I engage in where this is likely to occur? Where I am learning to live as Jesus lived. Where I am watching the master and I'm beginning to become the kind of person who imperfectly and clunkily but slowly begins to be able to do the things that he did. Can love the way he loved. Can trust the way he trusts. Can serve the way he served. Because the reality is I'm I'm not naturally the kind of person who loves his, his enemies, right? I am not naturally the kind of person who trusts. I'm the kind of person who gets anxious. So the question is, how do I become the kind of person who can do and be the things that Jesus did and was? And the question is, have I created a life as a whole in the, in the rhythms and practices by which I am regularly encountering God so that he can transform me into the kind of person who will slowly start to do the kinds of things that he did? Make sense? Okay. Um, Dallas Willard has a great analogy in this kind of apprenticeship model that I think is really helpful. And he talks about athletes, talks about um, sports, having like a, uh, uh, a sports star and then a young kid who wants to aspire to be like, you know, the, the star. So I have a picture. It's a little painful for me to put this up as a Laker fan. Um, <laughs> But so you here you have, you have the, the master, right, LeBron, about to enter, I believe, his eighth NBA final series, which is a remarkable thing, I have to admit. Uh, and then you have a young, aspiring uh, fan, right? And so as a fan, you know, these kids watch their, their heroes, right? They watch LeBron. Um, he can just pull up from anywhere, right, and, and, and drain a three at any time. He can, he's got a great, you know, you know cross dribble and get to the hoop. He, he can pass behind his back and do all these things. And so they watch the star. And so, so aspiring kids, they want to be like their sports hero, right? 
And so what they do is when they come to a game, they, they try to do the things that their hero does. So, you know, you, you buy the, the headband that LeBron has. You wear LeBron's headband. You, you wear the same shoes. And you try to do the moves that he would do in the game. And the question, of course, is will they be able to perform like their hero or not? Uh, well, in LeBron's case, the answer will always be not. Um, but Willard says this. Will they succeed in performing like the star? Well, we know that they won't succeed if all they do is try to be like him in the game. And we all understand why. The star performer himself didn't achieve his excellence by trying to behave in a certain way only during the game. Instead, he chose an overall life of preparation of mind and body, pouring all his energies into that total preparation. Those exquisite responses we see come game time aren't produced and maintained by the short hours of the game itself, right? They are available to the athlete for those game time moments because of a daily regimen that nobody else sees. So in LeBron's case, the thousands of free throws he shoots, right? When no one else is watching. The dribble exercises, the, the, the times in the gym working out, lifting weights that nobody else sees. Last week, we, we looked at Jesus, right? And we looked at this this overall life that he committed himself to, getting away, spending time with his father that nobody else saw in prayer, in solitude, meditation on God's word, so that come game time, when he stepped into these ministry opportunities, he always did the right thing, right? When someone comes at him with some conflict, he always knew how to respond. He, he always, come game time, did the right thing. But of course, he committed himself to, to a life of preparation with his heavenly father so that he might be the kind of son to his father that he needed to become game time. Again, Willard, a basketball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than the Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate daily exercise in godly living. And then this quote, I thought was good. This is, again, Willard. The general human failing, we'll all relate to this, is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. Right? Well, I want to love my enemies. I want to pray for those who persecute me. I want to trust God in the game. I want to come game time. I want to perform like Jesus. The question is, am I willing to commit myself to an overall way of life with my heavenly father by which come game time, I might respond the ways that Jesus responded. However, imperfectly, I might do it. All right, so I just want to sum this up. This is the goal of our lives, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We can look at this in terms of marriage, right? He is our groom. We want to maintain that close connection with our groom. The question is, what kind of life will help us do that? He is the master. We are the apprentice. We want to walk in his ways, begin to live life the way he lived life. The question is, how can we commit ourselves to a way of life so that living like him might actually become an increasing reality? And let me just be clear, the battle 
in the Christian life is fundamentally for the heart and the mind, all right? It is not for disciplines and practices and, and rhythms of life and structures. The battle is essentially a battle for our hearts and our minds. But that being said, <laughs> practically speaking, the battle for our hearts and minds is played out in the daily practices, habits, rhythms, experiences of our lives. Because where are our hearts and minds shaped, if not in the actual moments of our days? And so the battle for the heart and mind is also a battle for habits, practices, rhythms, disciplines. So I want to leave you. We've got this big picture. This is the goal. But I want to leave you this morning thinking, starting to think along these lines of your actual days, your actual, the the ways you go about your days, and whether those days are set up well to have this kind of relationship with Jesus. All right? So I'm going to get real specific at the end here. Um, A guy named uh, James K.A. Smith wrote a book where he he uses the word liturgies to describe our, our habits. And most of us don't use that word. It's a religious word. But um, a liturgy is usually is what referred to an order of service in a, in a church service. So most of us, when we, when we hear the word liturgical, we think of like high churches who make you stand up and sit down and you kneel at the same time and you're reciting creeds at the same time. That, we think of that as a liturgical service, right? Now, the reality is every church has a liturgy, has an order of service, okay? Grace Fellowship Church has a very strict liturgy, in case you don't know this. It goes opening prayer, three songs, announcements, sermon, two songs, benediction, amen, close, right? We rarely stray from that liturgy, okay? Now, we're considering trying to shake that up a little bit in the coming months, but we have a liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. Some liturgies are thoughtful. Uh, Some are not. Some people are just doing it because that's how we do church. We would never put announcements after the sermon. Why not? Because that's not how it's done, right? And our lives have liturgies as well. They have rhythms. There's an order of things that tend to happen, okay? So let's get concrete. Most of us have some kind of daily literature, and maybe Monday through Friday is the best way for you to think of this. But I want you to think about what is your daily liturgy? Uh, Let's start. What's your morning liturgy? Because we all have a morning liturgy. I'm going to throw out a couple liturgies for you. Morning liturgy. Uh, Alarm clock goes off at 6.30. Uh, My cell phone is by my, my bed. So the first part of my liturgy, wake up, I go to the phone, I quickly check my emails... And then I go to the news and check the, um, just kind of the headlines, get a sense of what's going on in the world. I go to the kitchen, I make myself a cup of coffee. Uh, I turn on the TV, Good Morning America. I don't know if anybody watches that anymore. Um, I have breakfast, I take a shower, I leave for work. Okay, there's a morning liturgy. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, Kids wake me up at 6.15, somewhere around there. Uh, We kind of stumble off into the family room. I turn on a show for them and I get breakfast ready for them. Uh, and they eat breakfast, and I get them ready for school. Uh, I yell at them to get in the car, and then we drive to school, and off to my day. That's a morning liturgy. Uh, Here's another morning liturgy. I wake up. uh, I read my Bible for 15 minutes. um, I have a journal. I spend a couple minutes, and I always start by listing five things I'm grateful for, Um, and then I 
go for a run, uh, and then I have breakfast, I shower, I leave for work, okay? Those are all different liturgies. I'm not judging any of those liturgies. Um, We have evening liturgies, right? What's your evening liturgy? I get home around 5.30, change out of my work clothes, uh, go to the fridge, grab a beer, uh, turn on the news, uh, then dinner with the family, kids go down at around 8, I watch a show till about 9, I go to bed with my computer, I catch up on Facebook and emails, I'm asleep by around 10.30, okay? There's a nightly liturgy. We have daily liturgies, uh, we have weekly liturgies, right? They're kind of more week-long things. Uh, yoga class, 6 a.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That's a weekly liturgy. Wednesday night, small group. Friday night is movie night at home or date night together. Sunday is church in the morning followed by NFL football in the afternoon. Okay? Weekly liturgies. We have liturgies when we're stressed, right? We go, there's these things we go to when we're stressed or when we're sad. Uh, another glass of wine after dinner is a liturgy. Uh, a trip to the mall to buy some new clothes is a liturgy for stressed people. A pint of ice cream in front of the television. Uh, two extra episodes of my favorite show on Netflix. These are liturgies. We have liturgies when we're happy, right? We are, you get the point, we are by nature liturgical creatures. Some of these liturgies in our lives are very thoughtful and intentional. Others are not. We, we just kind of fell into them, and, and we, we simply find ourselves doing them. The, uh, why do you do this? I don't know. This is just what I do. But whether they're intentional or not, our liturgies, our habits, our rhythms are absolutely shaping our hearts and minds so that in a real way, we are becoming the kinds of people we're becoming because of the kinds of liturgies and habits we are engaging in. It is unavoidable. That's just part of what it means to be embodied creatures in time and space. So when Paul says something like, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, we can go, I like that idea. But practically speaking, how do you, get trans- how do you have your mind transformed? If not, you find times where you are considering certain ideas that will transform your mind. So that I can say, I want to be transformed by the new of my mind. But if in reality, I give Jesus 90 minutes on Sunday morning, but five nights a week, I give my favorite Netflix show three hours a night, there is only one answer to what is transforming my mind. In very practical terms, I'm, terms, I'm being transformed by this, not by this. It just can't compete with the sheer time and attention that it's getting. So the question of this series, to wrap this up, is this. How do we become intentional with our habits, with our rhythms, with our, to use Smith's word, with our liturgies? What liturgies are going to help us maintain that pure and simple devotion to Christ? What liturgies are going to foster our hunger for God? What liturgies are going to take us away from that? And next week, we'll start with the first liturgy, meditation on God's word. And we'll spend a couple weeks looking at that one. Let me leave you with this image. And let me say again what I said. The goal of life, having just said what I said, the goal of life is not to live a life of perfect habits, practice, disciplines, liturgies. 
This is the goal of life. That pure and simple devotion to Jesus. That we could live a life that is rich and deep in its relationship with God. The question is, what kind of life will naturally lend itself to that? And so my prayer, even as we get very practical and concrete this summer, my prayer is that you would experience this summer series as an invitation from Jesus to you of him saying, I want to invite you into something deeper. I want to invite you into a relationship with me that is deeper and is more rich, that is more full of joy and meaning and grace. I want you to experience and encounter my goodness, my truth, my glory in deeper ways than you have before. But it's going to take some intention on your part because it doesn't just happen. I'm asking you to cooperate with me. I'm still speaking as Jesus here. I'm asking you to cooperate with me to begin to organize your life in ways that will make it most likely, if I can put it that way, to experience a depth and richness in our lives so that your life would truly be lived out of an overflow of our relationship. You wouldn't operate out of a place of neediness, of emptiness, of brokenness, but that you'd begin to operate as a place of fullness that comes from this relationship. So that is the invitation of this series. It is an invitation to a deeper, as we sing the song, a closer walk with Jesus. So let me leave you with that. And let me close our time in prayer. And then we'll get to our liturgy of two songs. <laughs> well, Lord, last week we watched you, the master in action. We saw the rhythms, the practices, the pursuits that you engaged in, even as God, that you still, as a man, felt the need to create a life where you regularly were in touch with your Heavenly Father, that you might be filled up by Him, you might receive guidance and rest and refreshment from Him. And if you needed that, then I can only imagine how much more we need it. And so as we are on the front end of this series, my prayer is that you would begin to show us where our lives are not set up well to encounter you. And specifically, what are some of those beautiful, positive, simple changes we might make to more intentionally pursue that sincere and pure devotion to you? And so I pray even this week, would you make us mindful of our liturgies? whether they're intentional or we just have fallen into them. Help us to see them. Help us to just notice what they are and, and what, they get, what we get out of them, whether they really are life-giving and helpful to our relationship with you or not, and that you might start to speak in our moments, in our days, about what it might look like to more intentionally go after you and your, in our relationship with you. So we pray for grace to do that this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.